Turn with me again this morning to Acts chapter 1, as we've just begun a new series in this book, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, uh, beginning in verse 12, and read through the end of the chapter here. Jesus has just uh, ascended to heaven. And uh, Luke tells us uh, what the disciples and others do next. Beginning in verse 12, hear God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, or Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot. And Judas, the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of it, and the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in this book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. I listened a while back to a a podcast interview with a Christian former secret agent uh, who then went on to some leadership position in the CIA. And one of the things that stood out was, was early on in his career, all the preparation and training, uh, becoming equipped and ready, not knowing, though, when he was going to be called to serve or where or how, uh, but being ready to serve his country, being, being ready to be used. And there's something parallel there with where we find uh, the fledgling church here in Acts chapter 1, uh, preparing to be used for Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus has just left. The Holy Spirit has not yet come. Uh, they're waiting and, and preparing. Um, they're waiting for this outpouring. Uh, but there's, there's much they don't know. They don't know a lot about the, the when exactly, the how, the, the what Jesus will ask them uh, to do, how they'll be his witnesses, extend, see his kingdom extended, uh, what he'll ask, ask them to suffer and, and to endure. Uh, But we find them faithfully waiting and preparing. And so I want you to see what we're told of that this morning uh, here in this this passage and see what we can learn 
Uh, as, as a church still today, there's much that we uh, individually and we as a body don't know uh, how Jesus will ask us to serve him, uh, what he'll ask us to suffer or to endure, um, when or how he will call us to be, to be witnesses for him. Um, in a real sense, the, the Christian life, the life of the church is uh, one of, of ongoing and constant service and witnessing and so on. But at the same time, it's ever preparing for what's next, uh, for what we don't know, uh, ever waiting for the return of Christ as well. So let's look at this little church preparing to be used by Jesus uh, throughout the book of Acts, throughout this story that we will See, just a few notes to set the scene here uh, in what we've read today. They, they leave the Mount of Olives, we're told, um, where Jesus ascended. This is a very significant place in Jesus' ministry. Um, he gave the, the Olivet Discourse, as we call it there. Um, this is where he was on the night that he was betrayed before his crucifixion. Uh, this is where he ascended. Uh, even in the Old Testament, Zechariah, for example, his, his end times vision in Zechariah 14 pictures the Lord coming down on the Mount of Olives uh, in that time. But they go back to Jerusalem as Jesus instructed them to do uh, a Sabbath day's journey, it says, which doesn't mean it was the Sabbath day. It's just a, a traditional distance uh, for Jews then. It was about, about three-fourths of a mile, so not very far. And they go to an upper room. Uh, probably the second floor of a home. Some have supposed through church history that this is, is the upper room. This is where they shared the Last Supper. That certainly could be, um, but, but uh, we're, we're not told. Uh, it could be a different one. Uh, verse 15 tells us there were about 120 people there. Uh, and if, if you have in mind just the 11 apostles... Uh, and, and Jesus' ascension and so on, maybe you think, well, wow, 120, that's a lot. But from another angle... This is all there is. This is a very small group. This is the New Testament church, a small fledgling group. And Jesus has just left them. Again, they don't know exactly what is next, what's going to be asked of them. They're waiting. They're a new church. They're vulnerable, probably have a lot of excitement, probably also have a lot of questions, um, perhaps some anxiety at this point. Uh, Luke also tells us, verse 14, that um, the women were there. And he evidently supposes that his readers uh, originally knew who that was, probably some of the prominent women from Luke's gospel. And also Luke would, would occasionally mention the fact that there were many women uh, who followed Jesus throughout his ministry, ministered to Jesus, uh, served him. Uh, so many of them are there as well. This is interesting, the last mention of Mary, Jesus' mother, in the New Testament here. Uh, but she is there as well. Um, and so this is the group, uh, 120 gathered there. And one of the first things that they do, looking at number one on your outline there, is, is appointing a new apostle. Appointing a new apostle. The apostle, who are the apostles? The apostles were chosen uh, by Jesus himself. Uh, back in Luke 6, they were all named. Um, they weren't called apostles yet there in the Gospels. Um, there are many references to uh, disciples, to, to many disciples, at one point, Jesus sent out 70 disciples, but there clearly are these 12 that were specially chosen by Jesus. Sometimes we call them just the disciples. Uh, they were set apart to be with Jesus particularly, to be with him more intimately, more privately, uh, to, be, to be trained themselves, prepared to lead and teach 
uh, really prepared for this, this time right here, uh, particularly. Jesus chose 12, uh, corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, probably it has something to do with the fact that much of the leadership, particularly the priests in Israel, had, uh, had failed in their duty, but also they were, their role was obsolete in the work of Christ. Um, and so Jesus is organizing the church for the new covenant, um, no longer tied to the temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood and so on. So these, these 12 were chosen to be Jesus' representatives, special representatives, his, his under-shepherds as the New, church, the new Testament church began. Uh, but Jesus had chosen 12, and because of Judas' apostasy, now there are 11, and the group seems clear that there are supposed to be 12, and that Judas should be replaced. Uh, verse 17, Peter says, For he was counted among us, he was counted, one of the 12, um, and received his share of this ministry. There's a, there's a share, there's a role that needs to be filled again. Um, and then... Uh, in verses 18 and 19 is really a parenthesis. You may, you may actually have parenthesis in your Bible, in your English Bible there, that Luke inserts. So he begins uh, Peter's speech, and then Luke inserts verses 18 and 19 to tell us a little bit more about Judas. Um, and, and there's some very graphic description here. And there's, there's really no small discussion or debate um, in, in church history about these verses because there are a couple things that sound like they might sort of contradict maybe Matthew's account of what happened to Judas. Uh, I don't think there's any necessary contradiction here at all, but, but for example, uh, Matthew tells us it was the priests who bought the field, so Judas was racked with regret, and he went back and threw the money that he'd been given back at the priests in the temple, and uh, they bought the field with the money uh, where, where Judas um, died. Um, but it was, as, as Luke says here, um, it was the money earned by Judas' wickedness that bought the field. So I, I don't think there's any contradiction there. Uh, Matthew tells us specifically that Judas was hanged, that he hanged himself. Um, and some have supposed that contradicts what Luke says here about him falling and bursting open. Um, but a, a hanged body that decomposes for a, a time will fall uh, and and. That's probably all that's being described here. Luke is simply not concerned about the role of the priests and so on here. He's concerned to tell us what happened to Judas and, and for us to see it in its gory detail as, as a judgment of God um, to warn us about what Judas did. Um, and, and that's part of the point of, of Peter's quotations then in verse 20 as well. Um, Peter quotes two psalms to show um, and, and saying there's, there's some fulfillment here in what happened to Judas. And, and Peter's not saying that these, were, these psalms were direct prophecies about Judas uh, alone, but he's showing how what happened to Judas is consistent with biblical principles and themes. So he quotes Psalm 69, uh, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. The psalmist there in Psalm 69 is crying for Deliverance, asking God for justice against his enemies, asking God that he would bring justice against his wicked abusers and that their camp would be made desolate is, is the part that Peter quotes here. It's a way of saying that, that their wickedness would come to an end. Their operation would stop. Right? And, and Peter applies that to Judas here, uh, saying God, God's justice won against Judas. Um, and it's right to see... It's right, I think, to see Judas' sin as particularly heinous. Um, that's why 
Luke is spending some time on it here and, and, and showing us the horror of what happened. Uh, you think about Judas. He was, he was chosen like the others personally by Jesus to be with Jesus himself, um, to live with him, learn intimately from him, experience his care and his glory and his grace up close for those years. And in the end, Judas treated that like uh, worth nothing more than the price of a slave, right? Um, Peter quotes Psalm 109 as well. That's the second quotation there in verse 20. And let another man take his office. Psalm 109 is even stronger worded plea uh, for God's justice uh, against evil abusers, those who are, are persecuting the psalmist. Uh, including the request that his days would be few and that someone else would take his office. Um, again, the principle there is, is the, the justice of God at times removing someone who's abusing and acting wickedly in, in their place, removing them and putting someone else who is, who is faithful into that position. Um, and Peter's applying this to Judas. God ultimately removed him from the twelve. Um, and it's good and necessary that his, his position would be taken by someone who's faithful to Christ. So that's, uh, that's Luke and Peter's justification here. The plan is in verse 21 and verse 22. Therefore, Peter says, it's necessary that one of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Just to note, he, he defines the pool that we're going to be dis- choosing someone from. It has to be someone who's been with Jesus from the beginning all the way up until the ascension that's just happened. And then the, the particular reason, the, the particular uh, qualification and purpose for that at the end of verse 22 is that so that this person can witness with us the resurrection. Certainly so that they can be a witness of, of all the ministry of Jesus, but, but there's a particular concern for someone who can be a witness to the resurrection. Uh, and so they end up choosing Matthias, uh, this guy Matthias. His name means uh, gift of God, and that's all we know about Matthias from the Bible, uh, this mention right here. Uh, the ancient historian Eusebius, uh, not an infallible source, but a generally reliable one, says that Matthias was one of the 70 that was sent out uh, in, in the Gospels. So an interesting point, if that's so. A later medieval church, history and sa- church historian says that Matthias uh, was then martyred in Ethiopia uh, eventually. So uh, again, uh, not, a, not an infallible source, but, but interesting details if, if true. But it's interesting how they chose Matthias. Uh, isn't it? They, they got two qualified candidates, Joseph and Matthias, and then they cast lots uh, to pick one. Uh, one. One scholar suggests the method was probably writing names on stones. This is one, one method of, of casting lots. And then you shake the stones in a bag or a basket or something until one falls out, and that's the one that's chosen. Uh, it's really not very much unlike how lottery machines, you know, choose a ping pong ball, okay? Um, now, what of this practice, though, is, is rolling the dice, uh, so to speak, on a crucial decision for the church uh, wise? What, what, how should we make, what should we make of this? Well, one, one question that will keep coming up that we'll, we'll have to ask from time to time as we go through the book of Acts uh, broadly is this. What, what, is, what in the book of Acts is, is special and unique to that time in the church? Uh, and, and what is normative for the church? What ought to be in the church still 
today? And, and sometimes it's a tricky question. There won't always be a really clear um, answer to that. And I think this, this is one, one case uh, like that. But it's an important question throughout the Bible to ask. What, what is descriptive of something and what is prescriptive for the church? What, what still ought to be uh, in our lives or in the life of the church? Um, one example would be, you know, Jesus challenged the rich young ruler. Uh, what was his challenge? Sell all that you have and give to the poor. Is that descriptive of a particular challenge God had for him, or is it prescriptive for all Christians for all time? But, you know, judging by our uh, lives, we, we most of us, I think, but think the former, that it was particularly, but it's a question to ask. How about the fact that you know, the, the church imitates Christ, right? That's, that's a big part of the Christian life, is imitating our Lord. Well, Jesus was not married. Do we imitate him in that? Is that descriptive or is that, that prescriptive? So uh, may, maybe those are not the harder ones to, to answer, but the, the, those will be a, that'll be a question to ask. Um, interestingly, casting lots is, is viewed positively in, in certain limited contexts in Scripture, um, this is how the promised land was divided up among the, the tribes. They cast lots for it. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 33, mentions the practice. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And that's not a positive or a negative comment about casting lots. It's just acknowledging this is something people evidently did, but they should do it recognizing that it's not just utter chance, that, that God is the one who ordains things. Uh, and, and I think what the church did here in choosing Matthias this way is not so much analogous to uh, a lottery or a gambling use of, of casting lots, but more to, say, a, a lottery for school enrollment, where, there's, where there are limited slots, or, or to you know, game tags for hunting, or something like that, uh, where it's used for equity, it's used to prevent someone... Um, you know, giving the outcome to someone with more money or more influence or, or some kind of bias being mixed in. Um, and, and again, we, we do that kind of thing in our culture still today. Proverbs 18.18 18 says this, The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Right? Rather than a power to struggle, you know, deciding the outcome, uh, a lot is cast. Sometimes wisdom doesn't point clearly in one direction or the other, or choosing one person over another, uh, both are equally good options. And so I think here, uh, in the church doing this, it, it prevented any uh, rivalry or campaigning between Joseph and Matthias, uh, which, which wouldn't have been appropriate to this office. Uh, they used wisdom to, to set the conditions uh, for, for the people that they would be choosing from, um, and they gathered candidates, and then I don't think the church saw this as, it's clear they didn't see this as leaving it to chance. You can see that in the prayer that they prayed immediately before casting a lot. That they saw this as a way of depending on the Lord. A way of depending on his grace. And it can be certainly read that way as as they're depending entirely on the Lord. Um, Again, we come back to the question, is this something we should do today? Well, maybe you don't know when the elders here have a service role we need to fill in the church, we have a box of ping pong balls with your names on it back here. No, uh, we don't. We don't do that. But I don't think there's necessarily any any reason to say you know a church should never do anything like this. But neither does it seem to be uh, strongly prescriptive for the church um, in the New Testament. There there is no instruction for the church to do something like this. Uh, there are no further examples after this in the New Testament of casting lots. 
Um, the next example of choosing people for service, deacons in Acts chapter 6, um, doesn't include casting lots. Um, and, and I would highlight even more that that instance and this one, and Acts 14 where they choose Paul and Barnabas out of the group to go uh, to be missionaries, uh, all of those are preceded by prayer. Uh, that's something that we see in every case. Um, and prayer is certainly a more definitive and prescriptive example and command throughout the New Testament church uh, for a church making decisions. Another, another uh, uh, in this passage, another place we might ask the question about is this descriptive or prescriptive, is this, um, is this normative for the church, is are the apostles normative? Uh, are apostles normative for the church? The church here is appointing uh, an apostle. Uh, there, of course, are uh, some minority church traditions. There are cults uh, that have apostles today. Uh, but I think there are several strong reasons to believe, and, and this is the, the position and practice of our church, that apostles were a one-time uh, special case for the church not to be perpetuated. Here, here's a few reasons we ought to answer the question that way. Uh, this is the only instance in the New Testament of the church replacing an apostle. Um, Again, it was Jesus designed to have 12, and they were, they were set apart for this, this very moment. Uh, and so they seemed clear that, that there were to be 12. Um, but later, in the book of Acts, when, when James dies, he's not replaced. Uh, when an apostle died in, the early, in, in this early church, there, there was no replacement. There's no account of that or provision made for it. Um, another reason is simply that no future generations could meet the simple qualifications for an apostle here. All right? It had to be someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. Uh, very soon, there would be no one left uh, who, who met those simple qualifications. Um, another reason is that the, the example and instruction for the churches moving forward in the, in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, is of appointing local elders, elders and deacons. Uh, there's no example or instruction to appoint uh, something like an apostle, but, but local elders to shepherd congregations. And then a final point would be that the apostles were, were simply and obviously gifted and, and given authority uh, in, in a unique way uh, for the very beginning of the church. And, and that point is perhaps somewhat controversial in, in Christianity relative to, to the charismatic gifts and that kind of thing. But uh, just note that Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Uh, the apostles were part of the foundation to build on. Uh, foundation is laid once and, and not something that continued or is repeated uh, any more than the, the person and the life and re- death and resurrection of Christ could be repeated. Um, so let's consider secondly then, a uh, few other simple things, that, number two on your outline, a few other simple things the church is doing that we might easily skip over, read over quickly here, but, but that are, are foundational, that are normative uh, for the church preparing to be used by God. So looking at number two, the church first uh, is gathered. Very simply, the church is gathered. Verse 15 again tells us that uh, it was about 120 people. Verse 14 these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And we're going to read through the book of Acts repeatedly of the church as a body that gathers together. 
They're going to keep doing this. And, and this had always been a fundamental and assumed characteristic of God's people. Long before this, the church of God, the people of God, gather together. And it remains this, the, the case in Acts. They gather to, to hear teaching, to, to pray, to worship together. Um, uh, maybe you think, okay, that's, that's obvious. That, that, um, oh, what's the big deal about that? But it's, it's increasingly not uh, so obvious uh, that the church gathers. Um, it cuts against the, the sort of me and Jesus uh, attitude among some in modern Christianity. It, it cuts against the idea of, of online church or online worship, not that, not that everything uh, with that is um, not good or not useful, but as, as a normative replacement for the church gathering together. Uh, it, this pattern of all of church history uh, cuts against that. Throughout the Bible, throughout the history of the church, the church gathers for worship, gathers for equipping and encouraging um, the sacraments for prayer, ga- church gathers for all of the one another's that Paul gives, encouraging one another, serving one another, praying for one another, forgiving one another, and so on. Uh, one commentator observes that, that this is the first instance here that in a, a pattern that we'll see in the book of Acts, which is we get a, a glimpse first, which, which is here, we get a glimpse of the church gathering together, uh, coming together for, for each other, for encouraging and, and feeding and serving the body of Christ. And then next, we get a glimpse of them going out and engaging uh, the, the world, engaging the community and, and being witnesses. And I think the, it's easily demonstrable the rest of the New Testament, Paul's letters and so on, suggest the church, that this, this remains the need and the character of the true church. We need times of inward focus, in a sense, of, of study and discipleship and support and worship. But then that feeds our outward mission uh, to the world, serving uh, those, those outside the church, witnessing to them. So the church is gathered. Secondly, we see the church praying. Uh, the church preparing to be used by Jesus is praying. Um, I already mentioned that, but, but it's worth focusing on for a moment. Verse 14, again, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, we'll get glimpses throughout the book of Acts of other things. Again, they do when they gather together, uh, teaching and celebrating the sacraments and so on. Uh, but a priority is given here to mentioning they're devoted continually to prayer. Uh, and the church praying will come up uh, 31 times in the book of Acts. 20 out of 28 chapters in the book of Acts uh, will mention prayer. Often the people of God gathered for prayer. Um, the rest of the New Testament will confirm this is a mark of a faithful and useful church. Uh, back in Luke 18, uh, we had read Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and never to lose heart. Uh, Paul would urge the church to pray without ceasing. Uh, Elsewhere, to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Uh, In Colossians, to continue steadfastly in prayer. So this this baby church seems to believe with all its heart that the the faithful prayer of righteous people accomplishes much. Right, That, That Jesus answers those who pray in his name. And they're devoting themselves continually to prayer. And so I want to encourage us as a congregation to continue uh, to be and, and even increase in being a people that pray, a church at prayer. Uh, and I'm, I'm so thankful for the ways that, that we are that. A uh, church preparing to be used by God is, is a church 
at prayer. Um, and isn't that our greatest desire, to, to be used of God, to bring glory to Jesus here in Longmont, to see his kingdom extended? Um, and yet we don't, we don't know a lot of the how or the what of that, uh, like, the, like the early church here. How he'll grow our ministry, perhaps, or how he'll ask us to struggle, um, or who he'll call us to care for. So the church is praying. And then finally, uh, we see the church preparing to be used by Jesus here, uh, united. The church is united. Verse 14 again. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. All with one mind. And we might ask, how, how was it that they were so united here? Um, surely there are a number of reasons and factors uh, given, given the uh, unique time that they were in here. Uh, but surely a significant one is simply what's mentioned here, that they were devoting themselves continually to prayer. Uh, isn't that something that unites? They were devoting themselves to Christ. They were gathered for the sake of Jesus. They were gathered waiting for the promise of Jesus. In other words, they were focused on him. They were devoting themselves to him. So much division in the church comes from thinking about ourselves, so thinking about our own agendas, how we want things to be or what we don't like. A church that's united is, is more ready to be used by the Lord. And a church that's Christ-centered, that's devoted to him, that's focused on him, devoted to praying together and worshiping together, is more likely to be united uh, for, for Christ. Uh, so the church is gathered, the church is praying, and the church is united. As we go through the book of Acts, we'll read about uh, a lot of Wonderful and amazing things, mighty works of the Holy Spirit and, and the powerful leadership of the apostles, famous sermons and miracles that they do and, and so on. We'll rejoice in those things, the way that God cared for his church through them. But, but ultimately, eventually, and we see this even largely in the New Testament, that it won't be those things that God primarily uses or does uh, in the church. But it will be the church gathered, the church praying the church united, the church devoted to the Lord Jesus uh, together. Uh, so may that be true of us as we prepare to be used uh, by Christ in the future. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you again this morning uh, for your word, uh, your infallible and reliable word that guides us and teaches us and comforts us. We thank you that uh, the Lord Jesus is ascended and is reigning for the sake of his church and uh, building his kingdom and driving back the gates of hell. Uh, we thank you for the ways that you uh, use uh, weak and um, inadequate people like us uh, for your purposes, the ways that you use our prayer uh, to bring about your will um, and to call people into your kingdom. We pray that we would be, uh, reflect uh, what the church was faithfully doing here in, in gathering and praying uh, and seeking to be united, uh, and that you would, you would use us, that we would be eager to be used by you. Uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.